Hello, Tim Williams here. I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Thanks for choosing to listen to one of our archived episodes from our early days of launching the show. Although I love the overall content of these episodes, I will say the recording quality was not always the best as the show was still evolving and I was learning to record and edit pretty much on the fly. I believe the sound quality and editing has improved from season to season, so be sure to check out more great episodes in our more recent seasons. I hope you enjoy this episode and that it rekindles all those warm and fuzzy nostalgic feels. Once again, thank you so much for listening. and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams, and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. A road trip movie, a buddy comedy, and teen angst director du jour John Hughes' first attempt at a holiday movie. It's a classic double-act farce that might not fit that well in the decade it came out in. There are no guns or bad guys like 48 Hours or Lethal Weapon, no winks at the Cold War a la Spies Like Us, and no time machine like Bill and Ted used in their excellent adventure. What it does share with a number of his best works is that mix of Norman Rockwell and Frank Capra in Reagan's America Late 80s. 
Steve Martin's Neil wants to get home to his family for the November holiday. John Candy's Dell, as we find out by the end, doesn't even have a home to go to. Despite whatever hell they put each other through, their friends, after all, is said and done. And you should always invite your friends over for Thanksgiving when they've got nowhere else to go. So for this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback, guest co-host Laramie Wells and I do our best to make the trek from New York City to Chicago by way of Wichita, Kansas, and even Wisconsin as we discuss planes, trains, and automobiles from 1987. So that's the plan for today. Please welcome my guest co-host for this episode, Mr. Laramie Wells. Welcome back. Good to be back. Uh, Just to let you know, I am wearing the same underwear uh, that I've been wearing since Tuesday. And I cannot, uh, I cannot uh, confirm nor deny that. I forgot what his line was, but yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, I thought about putting the, uh, putting the the thing about you got a better chance of picking up pixie sticks with our butt cheeks than getting out of Wichita tonight. So, uh, some great lines. So, uh, well, you know the drill. Let's jump right in. When did you see planes, trains, and automobiles for the very first time? I honestly was racking my brain trying to figure <laughs> that out. Um, I, I'm not sure. I know I've, you know, again, we make the joke that I always say this. I know I probably saw it on television growing up. Right. Uh, but I probably didn't sit down and watch it from beginning to end until after I had graduated college. Okay. So that was probably only like, you know, 15 or so, you know, 12 or 15 years ago. Right. Yeah, I did see this one in the theater. I remember, and it was funny because when I was watching it again, I always remember the scene being at the theater, because I guess back then, you know, they'd have different prints that would go to different movie theaters. It wasn't all digital, of course, it was on the film. But the print that we had, that, that I saw it in, um, the scene when they're sitting in the, I don't know if it's the bus station or the police station, but it's just two of them on the bench. But I remember seeing the theater and the boom mic above them was still in the frame. Like you could see it bobbing above their heads. So whoever had edited that, you know, one little piece or whatever must have got, yeah, messed, or, that, yeah, messed that little part. So, um, which I thought was, it's always kind of, uh, caught me off. It caught me off guard watching it. Just, it's just emblazoned in my memory. So whenever that scene comes on, I'm like, Oh, they fixed it. I don't see the, uh, the boom mic, uh, sticking out from the top. So, but, uh, but yeah, I, I saw in the theater, I loved it the first time I saw it and I've, uh, watched it on TV several times. I probably, more than likely, I recorded the TV version on a VHS and watched it several times. Um, I think I had a VHS copy, and I still have the DVD copy that I bought, which is what I used to watch this one um, on. I thought about you know getting the digital to get some of the uh, special features that aren't on the DVD copy I have, but um, but it's still great to, to sit down and watch. So how long had it been since yeah. you saw it before watching it for the podcast? Uh, you know what? Probably that same. I probably have not watched it uh, in twelve or fifteen years. Oh wow! Uh, I, you know, I'm a fan. Uh, yeah. It's just it. It's not in my. Uh, it's not in my collection. This is actually one I don't own. Wow. Uh, and but I mean, I'm a fan of it. Uh, yeah. It, John Hughes. Uh, John Hughes movies are typically great. Yeah. Uh, and so. So yeah, I'm a fan of it, but it just it has not fallen into that you know watch it every Thanksgiving gotcha. type uh, situation for me. Oh well, uh, yeah. There are several movies that I try to watch during the holidays. This one I don't watch it every holiday, but I, like once again, I don't have very many DVDs. Like I, I've got rid of DVD copies over the years, um, you know, 
for for various reasons. Uh, one of one, I had a huge DVD collection um, when when I got married, and then when my daughter was very young, um, when the whole digital thing and Netflix was just coming out, and you know watching stuff digitally. I was like, oh, this is the future. I'm getting rid of all my DVDs and I'm going to, you know, go to, you know, in my brain, I thought Netflix was going to have every movie I'd ever want to see. And then I got Netflix and was like, uh, no, that's not the case. And I was like, why did I sell my DVDs again? That's my worry about it too. You know, I was a a big movie buff uh, in high school and college and always had buying them, you know, buying the DVDs. I had the VHSs then switched over DVD and Blu-ray, although I've maintained mostly DVDs, Mm -hmm. uh, but that was my thing about digital is I think it's great. I use yeah. digital all the time. Oh, yeah. But I, I've got to hold on to my physical copies because yeah. I'm like, you never know when that license gets pulled. Yeah, yeah. And you can't find the movie you're wanting to watch <laughs> on any of those platforms. Well, I've realized that I've gotten rid of some DVDs that have either special features or director's cuts that the new digital versions don't yeah. have or the Blu-rays don't have. And so there's a few movies I'm like, I shouldn't have got rid of them. So, and then I go on eBay or try to find them somewhere and they're like, you know, because they're more like collector's items now, the, you can't get them for cheap anymore. I mean, I, I paid three times what I paid for them when I bought them. It's so. back like when you, when uh, you first could buy VHSs. When yeah. Like $80 a piece. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it'd been, so the last time I saw this, uh, I've, I've caught it on TV several times over the last couple. I remember like last year, I remember being over at my parents' house and it was on Comedy Central or CMT or whatever, one of the basic cable channels with all the commercials. And, I'm sure uh, it was TBS. TBS, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so we watched, you know, a good portion, like right in the middle, we watched like a good 20 or 30 minutes and then a commercial came on. And then, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of watching movies on TV with commercials. I just, I, I tend to lose interest, and so especially especially if it's a movie I've seen many several times, so uh, we switch to something else. So, but to sit down and actually watch it from beginning to end, it's probably probably been a good five or six years, maybe. Um, uh, but yeah, but like I said, this is one of those that I have on DVD. So when I the last round of getting rid of DVDs, I saved my Christmas holiday DVD. So I have this one, Christmas Vacation. Um, what else do I have? Also written by John Hughes. Yeah, also written by John Hughes. Uh, the Polar Express. Uh, there's a few others in there uh, that I watch that I try to watch every year. So, and there's a few that I want to add to my collection. But, uh, but yeah, this one is definitely one that I want to watch. I want to watch every year, even though I may not watch it. Especially now, there's so many new Christmas movies and holiday movies coming out, so it's hard to. You know, but not Thanksgiving movies. Yeah, exactly. Which most people don't forget that it's set in Thanksgiving, not necessarily Christmas, because there's so much snow in it. So, but which is why we're doing it this week and uh, going to drop the day before Thanksgiving, so you get a few days to enjoy it uh, over the holidays. So, but you mentioned John Hughes, so we're I, I we can't really talk about this movie without talking about John Hughes, even though we alluded to him. Well, not you and I, but. Uh, the episode we did about National Lampoon's Vacation, he was the writer of that, but I wanted to save to kind of really talk about him for one of his movies that he actually wrote and directed. So um, just give a little bit of history about who John Hughes is, if you don't know, which if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you know pretty well. So, uh, But like I said, he began as an author of humorous essays and stories for National Lampoon. He went on to write, produce, and sometimes direct some of the most successful live-action comedy films of the 80s and 90s such as, as we mentioned, National Lampoon's Vacation in 1983, as well as its sequels, 
European Vacation in 85 and Christmas Vacation in 1989. He also was involved with Mr. Mom from 1983, 16 Candles from 1984, Weird Science from 85, The Breakfast Club also in 85, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 86, Pretty in Pink in 86, Some Kind of Wonderful 87, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles as we're talking about today in 87, She's Having a Baby in 1988, Uncle Buck 89, Dutch in 91, Dennis the Menace in 93, Baby's Day Out in 94, and the Beethoven franchise who co-wrote under a pseudonym with Amy Holden Jones and probably the biggest hits he's had, Home Alone movies from 1990 and the sequels in 92 and 97. Most of Hughes' work is set in the Chicago metropolitan area. He's best known for his coming-of-age teen comedy films, which often combined magic realism with honest depictions of suburban teenage life. Many of his most enduring characters from these years were written for Molly Ringwald, who was his muse. While out on a walk one morning in New York in the summer of 2009, Hughes suffered a fatal heart attack. His legacy after his death was honored by many, including at the 82nd Academy Awards by actors with whom he had worked, such as Matthew Broderick, Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, and Macaulay Culkin. Actors whose careers Hughes helped launch included Michael Keaton, Anthony Michael Hall, Bill Paxton, Matthew Broderick, Macaulay Culkin, and the members of the Brat Pack group. So I tried to condense it as best I could, <laughs> but it's a lot. So, uh, hey, Robert Downey Jr., people forget, yes. did Weird Science. Yes, that's right. That was one of his early, early roles. Uh, I'm, we'll, we'll eventually get to Weird Science on the podcast. I'm sure that's another one of my... Well, I say it's my favorite, but I have not seen it in a long time, so I'm I'm not sure how well it holds up now that I'm a middle aged man instead of a young teenager. <laughs> it doesn't. I'll go ahead. I'll spoil that for you. It doesn't. I have a feeling that that's why I'm not ready to watch it again because I want to hold on to the memories yeah. that I have. So no, uh, I'm a fan of Weird Science, but it doesn't. Yeah. Not even the television show. <laughs> oh I'm yeah. Going back yeah. and rewatch the television show from USA. Yeah. I don't think I. I think I watched a few episodes of the TV show, but I didn't. I didn't get into the show as much as I yeah. the movie. So. It doesn't have the the. I guess you'd say heart that right. John Hughes. Yeah. Uh, movie does a uh, story does. Gotcha. What do you have? Any favorite? You have a favorite John Hughes film, or where this one would <laughs> that he directed? I would say it's Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Yeah. But that he wrote, I got to go home alone. Okay. Yeah. That's that's. Those are two pretty good ones. I I think Ferris Bueller is probably the top of the list for me. I know a lot of people are big Breakfast Club people. They think like that's the top of the you know the cream of the crop, uh, which I li- I love Breakfast Club. I'm not dogging in any way, but Ferris Bueller to me is almost one of the near perfect you know teenage movies of of his. Um, but I love a lot of movies that he wrote, including Home Alone. I love Mr. Mom. Uh, I love the vac- well. I love two of the Vacation movies. I'm not a big fan of European Vacation, but Chris's Vacation yeah. is great. The first Vacation is great, but um, but this one ranks pretty high for me as well. I, I really enjoyed enjoyed this one. So, um, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the origin of the story. Do you know do you know much about this already? I do actually. Okay. Uh, I did see how this is loosely based on an actual event yeah. that uh, that John Hughes experienced when he was before. I think he was a screenwriter. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. So before his career as a screenwriter took off, he wrote advertising copy for the Leo Burnett Burnett Agency, which is very similar to Neil's job as a marketing whiz. Um, as his old boss Robert Nolan told the Huffington Post in 2009, Hughes once endured a real life travel nightmare. 
He said John had an 11 a.m. presentation in New York on a bleak winter Wednesday. He flew out of Chicago at 7 a.m., planning to return to Chicago on the 5 p.m. plane. Strong winds grounded a ton of flights, so Hughes had to crash at a New York City hotel. The next day, a snowstorm canceled his Chicago flight, but he got another one, which was rerouted to Iowa, but then landed in Denver, then Des Moines, then when, uh, then the Des Moines airport was snowed in. Hughes eventually touched down in Phoenix before finally making his way home, and the nightmarish journey helped him write about Neil Page's insane adventure. But yeah, basically, a, one flight, it took him five days to get there, which... If you endure that, I'm sure it would inspire you to write <laughs> to write a comedy oh, yeah. about it. And then, and then he was nice about it in the movie because it only takes them three days. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I, I didn't I didn't know that until doing the research for this that this was actually based on something that was, you know, pretty close to being real. So uh, that was cool. So it said that uh, while John Hughes could write a screenplay with mind boggling speed. Because uh, it said he only wrote this, took him like three days to write the first draft. And I was watching a uh, kind of a behind the scenes little featurette, I guess, that, that somebody put on YouTube, where he said that he writes very fast because when he gets the idea, he just wonder, he wants to just write the dialogue as fast as it comes. And he doesn't really think about too much about the details. So, yeah, he can write a script in like three days, but he'll do like 25 rewrites, which can take, you know, a much longer time. But I thought it was funny because Steve Martin was in the in the the video with him, and he was you know Steve Martin had just done Roxanne, which he co- which he wrote, and he said it took me twelve months to write Roxanne, but you wrote this in like three days, and he was a little envious of that. So, but uh, which, which from what I've I've gathered is about average. Like pretty much all of John Hughes movies, he writes very quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, like I said, that's that's <clears throat> that's kind of his method is because he he gets that dialogue and he just wants to I guess, more yeah. rapid fire. So. Um, no, and I, I totally understand that. I'm the same way when it comes to creating stuff. I'm like, okay, I, I got to get this out now, <laughs> right? Because um, if I don't, yeah. I'm going to forget things. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to recall it yeah. later. So I totally understand that. I I did. I also was looking at some of that and found out that that's also the reason why he doesn't doesn't actually like to direct a lot of his yeah uh, screenplays because he likes to write them. But he doesn't like to direct them because he's about, you know, he's slower as a director. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, um, that was good. I actually, I actually read that he was not originally set to direct this one. Right, that's right. Yeah, he was, uh, when he didn't direct, he usually tried to use Howard Deutsch, I guess is how you say his name, for the job. Uh, Deutsch directed three of Hughes' pin movies, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, and The Great Outdoors, another one that we forgot to mention earlier. That's uh, another favorite of mine. Um, he almost had planes, trains, and automobiles on his resume, too. Hughes had just finished directing She's Having a Baby and gave Deutsch the call for planes, trains, and automobiles. But then once Steve Martin signed on to star, Hughes took the project back for himself and gave Deutsch the assignment of Big Country, which was later renamed The Great Outdoors. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I guess he really wanted to work with Steve Martin, but once again, you know, who wouldn't? Steve Martin yeah. is fantastic, so... And uh, just a little side note before we really get into casting, which I guess we're doing now, but uh, I didn't realize until I was doing the notes that the last movie you and I discussed had Steve Martin and John Candy in it because we did Little yep. Shop of Horrors. Little Shop. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot because John Candy has such a small, that little small cameo right there uh, near the beginning. And so, of course, Steve Martin has a little bit more of a, of a role there. But 
Uh, but yeah, let's talk about our cast. So you big Steve Martin and John Candy fan? Uh, Steve Martin, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I've always been a, a fan of Steve Martin. Uh, love his physical comedy. Yeah. Uh, you know, which he gets to show off a little bit in this film. Um, primarily when he walks down the, uh, the hill. Yeah. Uh, over the overpass. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, huge, huge, uh, Steve Martin fan. Uh, you know, John Candy, I like, I can't, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan. I don't dislike him. Right. Right. I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of John Candy. Uh, he's great in this movie though. Oh yeah. Putting Steve Martin and John Candy together is really the kind of pairing people dream of. Martin, a few years completely removed from his stand-up days, was starting to inch away from the zanier works like The Jerk and The Three Amigos and move closer towards his more family-friendly fare of the 1990s. <laughs> For Candy, it was... Family-friendly <laughs> family does not describe the car rental scene. <laughs> well, yeah, that, yeah. And we, we'll talk, I guess we can talk about that right now. So, yeah, the, the car rental scene is probably one of the most famous scenes of this movie for sure. Uh, because the only reason it's rated R exactly because they he used the word the F word is used nineteen times and basically by Mark yeah and exa- and basically a one minute uh, scene and uh, and they said that was the only reason the MPAA gave it the R rating was because they used the word so many times but I saw in like in uh, was it was it the can it was a Canadian I can't remember which one of the other countries gave it a PG thirteen or a PG rating and left that that scene intact. Like they didn't bleep, you know bleep out any of the words at all. So uh, that was interesting. That's cult- cultural stuff. Yeah, there. exactly. And they talked about that in the in the uh, the little behind the scenes thing that I watched. And basically, he was saying that uh, you know they did so many they did so many screenings of it up until this little kind of press uh, interview they were doing. And he said, no one's been offended. No one has been shocked by it. You know, so uh, he said, because really it's not, they didn't feel like it was being gratuitous at all. It was just, it was coming out of his, you could understand his frustration. And that's just how, you know, he chose to verbalize it. So, but, uh, but Edie McClurg, uh, who plays the uh, uh, rental car uh, sales lady or whatever, um, she said, that's the most famous line that she, that people ask her to repeat. Uh, when they meet her, is they want they want them they want her to tell them that what she says. We're not going to say it here because we're a family friendly yeah. podcast. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so he's getting away from uh, from that more family friendly fair of the nineties. For Candy, it was the start of a fruitful working relationship with Hughes, one that uh, would see the SCTV alum go on to star in The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, and a small role in Home Alone in nineteen ninety. So. Uh, amazing. I'm go ahead and throw this out. Yeah, go ahead. I've never seen Uncle Buck. You've never seen Uncle Buck. Wow. I've never seen Uncle Buck. Um, that needs to go on your list uh, to watch. Uh, it's what's interesting because uh, if you if you're a regular listener of the podcast, uh, one of my other co-hosts, Ron West, who's on here a lot, uh, co-hosting a couple of episodes, we talked about he's never seen a movie. It seems with the word train in it, he's never seen Throw Mama from the Train, <laughs> and he's never seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So uh, I gave him the homework assignment of watching Plane Trains Automobiles after our last podcast. And so he texted me um, He texted me the day he was watching it, and his first comment was, I thought this was supposed to be a comedy, and you usually laugh when you watch a comedy. And I was like, well, it depends wow. on where you are <laughs> in the movie. And yeah. I said, but it is more of a – he was expecting much more of a slapstick, typical you know, Steve, Steve Martin. Martin kind of a comedy. Yeah. And I said, well, it's John Hughes, so it's a little more – it's drama and comedy mixed together, so I could see that. But 
uh, today. I was like, "Do you have any final thoughts?" And he said he'd never seen it. He'd never seen it before, and he'll probably never watch it again. Um, he thought it was okay, but he really loves Uncle Buck. That's like his favorite John Candy movie, and so he would prefer to watch Uncle Buck over Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But he did enjoy. Uh, he enjoyed it, but he said it wasn't one that he'd probably watch over and over again, or one watch over the holidays. So. Uh, so the, for you to mention you've never seen Uncle Buck, I was like, well, yeah. I have two friends, one that had never seen Planes, Trains, Automobiles, and now one that has never seen Uncle Buck. So now your your assignment <laughs> is to watch Uncle Buck. So, uh. My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight, as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and we'll see you on the other side of the page. Um, But yeah, I thought this was interesting. John Hughes originally wanted Tom Hanks for the role of Neil Page, and John Travolta for the role of Del Griffith. No. <laughs> yeah. Hanks was unavailable since he was busy shooting big, and Paramount executives did not want Travolta in the movie because he was considered, quote-unquote, box office, box office poison at the time. Uh, John Goodman was also considered for Del Griffith, and Rick Moranis was also considered for the role of Neil. Uh, That's not bad. Yeah. I could, I could see the Rick Moranis. I could see the John Goodman... I could somewhat see the Tom Hanks, but really, it's hard to put anybody else in these two roles besides Steve Martin and John Candy. I think for me, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, you know, and part of it, you know, it's just the two of them. Yeah, and I know John Hughes gave them a lot of free reign. Yes, yeah. Um, and so you know, just them bringing the you know their own just genius of comedy yeah. to the roles. Uh, I, I know makes it so ingrained that it is Steve Martin and John Candy. You know, you don't know how how different it was from John Hughes' original script, right? And so, of course, Tom Hanks could have worked. I mean, he was doing comedies at that time, mm-hmm. um, and and so it, it could have worked. And I mean, John Goodman probably wasn't as big of a star at the time no. as John Candy, but he he definitely could have. Brought, he's really good about, especially bringing that heart mm-hmm. to yeah. it as well. Uh, so, so I could have seen it, but but I agree. You know, it's got you know Steve Martin and John Candy have just you know they've owned these characters. Yeah, I think Edie McClurg talked about it in the special I was watching, and she said the beauty of it is kind of you know Hughes really wrote these two characters that at the heart were that's Steve Martin, kind of that's his real persona. They said he's as funny as he is. He's a very quiet and very serious yeah. and reserved person. And then you've got John Candy, who is very outgoing and very, you know, uh, uh, not rambunctious, but boisterous in his personality. And she said, and then he just he took those elements of their personality and then just magnify it for this, you know, for the sake of comedy in the movie. But at the heart, that's kind of the closest to those two personalities. And I think even uh, Steve Martin said that, you know, talking about John Candy after his death. And they were, you know, was talking about this movie, and he said, uh, he said Candy was a like the character. He said, you know, he was funny. He's one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, like really, really nice. But he said, but there, you could tell there was a, there was a heart, there was something broken 
deep down inside that he, he was heartbroken just like Del Griffith was in the movie. So um, he said he remembered that, you know, much longer after the movie. So uh, probably the most famous cameo in this movie, of course, is Kevin Bacon, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. So, but he was, uh, he would just finish filming. She's having a baby. And uh, he basically told Hughes, he's like, I don't know what you're working on next, but if there's any part that I can play, even if it's really small, then let me know. And basically Hughes called him at the last minute and said, hey, are you in town? He said, yeah. He said, can you come do this one scene? And uh, they filmed it in one day in a few hours. So pretty fun. And I mean, from what I've read, I think it's supposed to be loosely implied that it yeah. is the character from She's Having a Baby. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll 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 dive a little bit into the uh, John Hughes multiverse uh, here in a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and I know you said we're going to get into that, which I'm excited about. Yeah. But at the same time, that gets broken because uh, at one of the points when Neil calls his wife, yes, or not not when he calls her. It's not when he calls her. It's when they're sitting at the, uh, they can't sleep. It's when right. they can't sleep. Right. And we cut to Neil's wife watching television. Mm-hmm. She's watching, she's having a baby. Right. Even though the movie doesn't come out till for another till year. six months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it but, is kind of a, it, it's, it, it, in John Hughes' mind, it works, even though it doesn't work <laughs> in yeah. reality. So, so the whole, the whole Hughes verse. Yeah. Uh, is kind of broken by that, but right? Yeah, but yeah, it yeah, it's it it's kind of a thing to you have to wrap your mind, you know, it, you have to wrap your mind around it a, a little tighter than I probably can. So, but uh, other cast members from uh, other Hughes, Hughes films included Edie McClurg, who I mentioned before, who was uh, Principal Rooney's assistant in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as well as Ben Stein. Uh, he played the airline, uh, I guess clerk to, to tell ticket them taker to ticket taker to announce like that. that the uh the flight was being delayed uh but he was the course to nowhere yeah the flight yeah. to nowhere exactly if you notice behind his shoulder it said the flight was going nowhere but he said he yeah. wanted him to be he said he called him to do that scene because that was the only person he could see playing that role because every airport he'd been in when somebody cancels a flight they have this most deadpan voice to tell you and then they always smile Right after they make the, you know, your flight has been canceled. And they just have this cheesy grin on their face, which he does in the movie. And then uh, Lyman Ward is not a name that I would remember. But that was Ferris Bueller's dad in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And he plays oh, yeah. his his workmate at the beginning who was going to take his gloves to him uh, when he got home. So other notable faces are young Matthew Lawrence. If you're a child of the 90s, you know who Matthew Lawrence is. And Joey, his brother. Whoa. Um, <laughs> Dylan Baker, who's been in tons of, uh, TV and movies, uh, since then he, he plays the, uh, I think it's the son-in-law of the motel owner, the first mo- motel they stay in, who has the weird speech impediment snorting issue, uh, which I thought was really funny. And then, uh, I don't know if you picked up on the, the kid that robs them at the motel, Gary Riley. Summer school. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I know it's such a forgettable movie, but uh, but yeah. So yeah. Gary Riley and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the. There are several extended versions of this film, uh, with lots of scenes that were deleted, and so one of the scenes that was deleted was when uh, Neil is in the shower. Uh, Dell orders a pizza. And uh, Gary Riley actually played the pizza delivery guy who comes in, 
but Dale doesn't have any cash, so he pays the uh, pizza guy a dollar in pennies and basically gives him a hundred pennies. And so that's why he comes back and robs them later because he he wanted he you know he's coming back to get a bigger tip. So uh, it still works the way it's edited, but I thought it was an interesting a little extra storyline you know backstory yeah, there. So give him reason. Yeah. Uh, another one which I thought was interesting, if you watch the credits, uh, you might have noticed that Michael McKean actually receives fourth billing, That's but he only appears one scene, one scene <laughs> and is actually on screen for only 90 seconds. Uh, in the behind-the-scenes special, which is the one that I watched, uh, McKean explains that his scene was much longer and featured crucial exposition that was eventually abandoned. In the full scene, the trooper informs Neil and Dell that they had actually driven past Chicago by driving a hundred or so miles into into Wisconsin, and would have to turn around and go the opposite direction. This causes Neil and Dell to have a verbal and eventual physical fight, which is why Dell has has what appears to be a black eye for the rest of the film, and that's why they were arrested and taken to jail, not just because the car was impounded. So, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, so they said the casting director said that they got Michael McKean because it was a much longer scene they wanted. They wanted kind of a, a uh, an actor that people would recognize, so um, I thought that was interesting. I, th- I thought maybe he just he just put in his contract he wanted top billing or you know higher billing <laughs> for such a small little cameo, but but even in the credits, I think they have Kevin Bacon listed at like fifth or sixth in the uh, the final credits. So, any other uh, characters or actors in the in the film that you noticed or wanted to make mention of? No, I think you uh, you got most of them. Because um, yeah, I didn't recognize I didn't recognize the the kid that robbed them. Um, you know, I didn't even it didn't even seem like any of the family when he shows up when they show up at the end. You know, his in laws and his parents yeah. are there. Yeah, just out of the blue. Yeah, um, and uh, I mean, it's literally out of the blue. The mm-hmm. daughter opens the door. Yeah, and then when yeah. they they pan back, the whole family yeah, just kind of standing there. The there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but I didn't recognize any of them. No. Um, so, no, yeah. I think I think you got most of them. Yeah, I think Hugh said that like he he he's big on the casting of the main characters, but a lot of the the smaller characters, like said, he called Edie McClurg, and uh, which yeah. actually that she got her role when they were. She's actually in. I think she's having a baby, and she said she told the story about they were um, trying to fix the lighting, or there was something they were trying to fix. But they were trying to keep everybody on set he didn't want anybody to leave so he had the script for um planes trains and automobiles and had that scene at the rental car desk and he told her to read it to the people that were standing there and read both parts so she just read it you know reading both parts and not knowing what it she's like oh he's working on something he's trying to you know hear the dialogue hear how it sounds whatever and she said people just you know people are laughing people loved it or whatever and he was like, oh, okay, thanks. She, she gave it back to him. And she said a couple months later, she gets a phone call. She's like, hey, when you doing set for plane train automobiles to, you know, to play the rental car clerkly? She's like, oh, that's why I was reading it. He was auditioning me and uh, <laughs> not, not just having me read the script. So, uh, and uh, also that scene was one of the reasons why Steve Martin signed on for the film. He said when he read the script, uh, there were two scenes that, that he said he, he wanted to do, why well, he wanted to do the movie. It was that scene and the scene of John Candy trying to adjust the seat in the car, uh, yeah. the way it was written. He said he just knew that was going to be hilarious uh, to be done. So th- those two scenes are what got him got him involved. So, 
right, well, let's talk about, as I mentioned, there are various cuts of this film, which I didn't know this until, you know, researching for the podcast. So it runs at 93 minutes, and in that time, audiences feel very feel every bit of Neil and Dell's frustration as they try to get back to Chicago. But writer-director Hughes initially wanted the audience to empathize and understand their exhaustion even more. According to Kirk Honeycutt's John Hughes, A Life in Film, the shooting script for the film ran 145 pages. As one page generally equals a minute of screen time, this means Hughes envisioned a two-and-a-half-hour comedy. When Steve Martin first received his noticeably large script, he figured Hughes would eventually cut out some scenes, so he asked Hughes what parts he thought he might end up deleting. As Martin tells it, he looked at me strangely and said, Cutting? I realized I had no in- I had realized at that point he had no intention of cutting anything. Adding to an excessively lengthy script, Hughes encouraged Martin and John Candy to ad lib as much as they wanted. All together, according to Martin, that helped make the first cut uh, run of four and a half hours. According to editor Paul Hirsch, the original cut of the movie was three hours and 40 minutes long. He and John Hughes then edited it down to two hours. This version was the te- was test screen and was probably used to edit trailers for the film, which is why they show a lot of deleted scenes. Based on pressure from the studio, the movie was then edited again down to an hour and 33 minutes for theatrical release. According to Hirsch, a two-hour version still exists, but he doesn't know where it is. Home Alone director and well-known Hughes collaborator um, Chris Columbus says he says that he's actually seen a three-hour cut of the film. So, should they release the uh, Hughes cut? No. <laughs> no, I think I think that the, there's I think there would just be too much. I yeah. think it would. Yeah, I think I mean I get I get the idea is that you're supposed to feel like you know mm-hmm. it's. It's taking forever for them to get there, but I think the hour and a half is perfect. I think the way the story is told, yeah, yeah. perfect. There's a there's kind of a deep dive. One guy's actually read several copies of the of a couple of versions of the script, and one he th- believes is pretty close to the shooting script. And so um, there's a pretty cool video where he he talks about a lot of the scenes that were cut. Where I got the uh, the one about. Uh, Gary Riley, the 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 petty theft, petty thief, was actually the pizza delivery guy, and so there's a couple of uh, deleted scenes that he said added a little bit more, you know, backstory. There were a couple of subplots that were cut out, but once again, it probably would have bogged bogged down the film more than it needed because it does being it, you know, a 93 minute movie is pretty much what you need. You're not dragging stuff out too long, and you you feel like you're you're getting all that you need. So, um, but there are several deleted scenes um, from the movie. So, and there's actually only one that you can find, I think, on the Blu-ray, which they also use in the television version, which is a pretty good scene. So, if you have time, it'd be good to to go back and check that out. So, because um, I actually remember when I was watching the deleted scenes, I saw I was like, I've seen this scene already, and then I realized that they'd use it for the TV edit because on the TV edit they'll add that scene in and then just take out the. Uh, rental car scene instead of trying to put a different word <laughs> in for the F word there to make it even more, uh, um, uh, even more uncomfortable scene. So, um, you want to talk any about, about the deleted scenes or move forward? I, I'm not familiar with, again, I've, I don't think I've ever seen this on 
uh, anything that I've had access to deleted scenes. Okay, gotcha. So I, I, I'm not familiar with any of the of the deleted scenes. Okay, well, I'll I'll talk about a few, and the other ones I'll just put in the show notes. So if you want to hear more about those, you can go to the show notes. So. The film crew uh, filmed a sequence set in a strip club, which would probably have given it a pretty good R rated for that one. Uh, in that deleted scene, after Neil and Dell's car catches fire, they pop into an establishment to use the phone, and Dell gets very distracted by the scantily clad women on stage. So I could see why that one was definitely cut. Um, the, the, the scene that I was mentioning about that's actually in the, on the Blu-ray deleted scenes, and I think you can catch it on YouTube as well, um, it says it shows Dell and Neil uh, attempt to eat dinner on the plane when after they first meet, uh, but Dell goes on and on about the different optional meals he enjoys on various airlines. He then tells Neil a horrific story of an airplane food preparer who accidentally cut the end of her finger off into a pot of carrots and couldn't retrieve it, causing Neil to lose his appetite except for the brownie on his plate. The scene ends with a long-haired passenger in front of Neil. Uh, whose hair cascades down onto his brownie. So if you've ever ridden a plane and you've seen somebody just throw their long hair over the back of the seat, on that scene, you know, he's about to grab his brownie and all of a sudden this hair just falls right on top of his food. And so, yeah. So uh, seeing that Neil is fully disgusted, Dell fishes through the hair to retrieve and ends up splitting it with an older passenger sitting in their row. So it's a very funny scene and I can see why they kept that one and put it in the theatrical version. So it's definitely worth going to check out because, uh, yeah, it Dell is he's a, he's very much a talker, and so he just goes on and on and on about the different kind of meals he's eaten uh, on on different on different uh, plane trips. So uh, one scene that I thought, once again, probably would have made it a much more dramatic movie than it is. Uh, so at the if you know spoiler alert, if you know the twist ending or the ending at the end is that Dell's wife, who he mentions through most of the film, actually died eight years before then. And he doesn't go home. Uh, it doesn't, he, doesn't, he says that he doesn't have a home. Uh, in that scene, in the original cut, they don't go directly to Neil's home. They actually go to a diner and they sit down and Dell actually gives a more uh, fully full story of uh, the life he had with his wife, Marie, that they were unable to have children. And that after she passed, he just couldn't handle the being at home on the holidays. So that's why he packs up his trunk and just decides to go from town to town during the holidays. And uh, there's a part in the script where he says that um, he would even like try to find a church to get involved because he thought being around people would help him to just kind of feel like he was a part of something. But this year he didn't do that. And then when he ran into Neil, he just clinged on to Neil so tightly. And Candy actually ad-libbed some lines about how his character was so lonely that he latched onto people. But this time, quote unquote, he just couldn't let go. Um, that scene was eventually cut from the film. So I could see why it was probably a little too heavy handed for a dramatic ending. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's a good backstory for Dell. Um, cause he says, I don't have a home. I was like, was this guy homeless? Like, does he literally, you know, living out of a, out of a trunk? Um, so, but, um, it gave a little bit more exposition for, for his, his character. So. Yeah. Cause they, they do establish that, He's got connections yeah. everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think maybe a little bit more exposition. I would have wanted that scene at mm-hmm. the end. I, I think we get just enough. Yeah, um, and I think I think going to a diner wouldn't make sense because you've been trying to get home all this time and you're so close. Yeah. Why would you stop and eat? But I think they needed a setting for that, you know, that conversation to take place. 
Yeah, no, I, I think what they did was was just enough. Uh, you know, it lets the reveal, but it doesn't go so far deep that it brings the whole movie down. Right. Here, right. right there at the end. Um, you know, again, a little exposition. You know, if they could have found somewhere to put that, just to give a little bit more about, uh, you know, Dale going around and meeting people and right. why he's why there are so many people who always want to help them. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So another kind of subplot, which once again. If you if you read the back, and we haven't gotten to Ferris Bueller's Day Off on the podcast yet, but we will eventually. But a couple of years ago, I I'd read an article about the 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 quote unquote darker side of Ferris Bueller, about how that original script Ferris Bueller was really kind of a jerk. He wasn't you know a really nice guy. And it was a much darker script than was written. So we know Hughes has kind of a dark <laughs> a little bit of a dark side in writing his his movies. So um, they took a lot out of Neil and his wife. Um, in the sense of when he calls and says that he's going to be, he's running late. She actually had a subplot where she thought he was having an affair. And so every time he mentioned Dell, she was thinking he was with another woman. And so there, there was a couple of like, I guess some phone calls that kind of ended kind of abruptly because uh, Steve Martin's character didn't realize why she was upset because he's telling the truth. But in her mind, he's trying to spend Thanksgiving with this other woman instead of coming home. So that's why at the very end when they come in, she's so relieved and so she's crying tears because not just because he's come home, because oh, she realizes there really is a Dell Griffith and he really was yeah. trying to come home. So I do think that's one of the the weaker parts of the the movie is yeah. the relationship he has with his wife. Because they're at the end when she comes down, it's almost like, you know, they're they're giving this such a big moment. Yeah, I'm going, yeah. I'm going, but we we know nothing about their actual relationship. <laughs> yeah. We saw nothing to set that up. Right. Uh, you know, we've seen a couple of scenes, like, again, that scene where he's trying to sleep and mm-hmm. she's watching television. Like, that was the that was the most we ever got about yeah. how they were truly missing each other. Yeah, because um, I think there's only, like, one actual phone call in the final cut where they're talking together. Because like, he tries to call later and they're at the Thanksgiving pageant. The daughter's Thanksgiving pageant, so the phone just rings, and so. But I, I watching it this time towards the end, I was like, surely he's called her, many, you know, several times along the way to say, "Hey, here's what just happened. You won't believe what happened. Now we're here." Da, da, da. Yeah. But none of that which, was which there. Is, so, which is another thing, and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, a little bit later. But that's one of the things I was saying too with my wife as we were watching. I was like, this movie would be so hard to remake. <laughs> Yeah, because with cell phones and Uber right. and all of this other stuff, you know, it would be so hard to remake this movie. You'd mm-hmm. have to find ways to get around all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, for yeah, for him and his wife not to have had because yeah, I think the only conversation they have is at the initial mm-hmm. airport, right when it first um, gets delayed. Yeah, I'm in Wichita. What's in Wichita? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, because because like you said, he calls again, but they're at the pageant, and then. When he tries to call that one last time, the phone's got the lock on it. Oh yeah, yeah, and the mo- yeah, the one motel, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then, amazingly enough, there was an alternate ending, or this what I guess what was actually shot, what what's in the final, uh, the final cut, is an alternate ending of what was written, um, in the original script or the, the original shooting script. 
uh, Dell actually boards the Chicago commuter train with Neil and follows him all the way home. So, you know, Dell doesn't come back and find him. Uh, but during the editing process, John Hughes decided to change the ending so that Dell would, I guess, quote unquote, take the hint and allow Neil to return home alone. In order to get the new ending, Hughes and editor Paul Hirsch located footage of Steve Martin on the Chicago train from a previously deleted scene. All this footage was shot without Martin ever knowing the camera was on. His laughter and facial expressions perfectly matched what Hughes was looking for in the flashback scenes with Dell. However, in the raw footage, Martin is only daydreaming or thinking about his lines in the next scene. Hughes remarked that Martin had a beautiful expression in those unguarded moments. And uh, yeah, I guess in the original ending ending, it shows him actually at home with the family having dinner. And that's where those scenes, they cut some of, they edited those scenes to be kind of like him, I guess, seeing his family, looking forward to seeing yeah. them and then beginning to remember the things from the, from the trip. So um, I like that ending a lot better uh, than yeah. what they originally That's crazy that it was the, the scenes of Steve Martin weren't meant for that yeah. scene. Yeah. They, they do fit really well. Mm-hmm. And that he didn't even know he was being filmed. He's just sitting there having personal moments and they, they mm-hmm. captured it. So, All right. We'll talk about the Hughes multiverse, question mark, as we kind of alluded to earlier. Just before John Hughes started directing Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the filmmaker best known for teen comedies finished up a more adult-oriented comedy, She's Having a Baby, uh, which if you haven't seen it, you can skip it. I'll just throw that out right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not as good. No. The movie finds Kevin Bacon and the movie finds Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth McGovern as a young married couple anxious about starting a family. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles seems to be set in the same cinematic "quote unquote" universe as that film, although its events also take place in a world where she's having baby. It's also a movie, as Laramie mentioned. See the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where Neil talks to his wife Susan over the phone. A TV on in the background plays a scene from "She's Having a Baby." I think you said is actually when they were. Yeah, they're, yeah they're not talking on the phone yeah. when the scene happens. Right. So, but She's Having a Baby wasn't released until February of 1988, about three months after Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. John Candy, who was in this one, makes a cameo in She's Having a Baby, but in character as Chet, the guy he plays in the movie The Great Outdoors, which was not released until June of 88, four months after She's Having a Baby. And it all comes full circle with Kevin Bacon. The actor briefly appears at the beginning of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Stealing a taxi from Neil, the same scene repeats from Bacon's character's perspective, and she's having a baby. So they actually use that same scene, but it shows it from Kevin Bacon's perspective, and she's oh. having a baby. So okay, it's been so long since I've seen that yeah, movie. Yeah, because it was so bad. Yeah, I, never, I think that's one that I've anything. I've really only seen once and don't really care to yeah. watch again. So, but that was uh, the same for me. But yeah, I think that was interesting. He he, ha- he definitely I call it a multiverse because he's using characters that we won't find until the future that are in the past and also in a movie. So it doesn't make any kind of logical sense, but I think one other person said that uh, John Hughes had created a fictional town in Illinois and all these characters are basically in that town and he's got their, they're all kind of connected in their own kind of Stephen King, kind of Stephen King uh, weird world. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's it's kind of a Stephen King uh, situation. Um, Cause I had heard, I don't know exactly what the, the connection is, but there's supposed to be some connection between Molly Ringwald's character in one of the movies mm-hmm. and Ferris Bueller that they're yeah. supposed to actually know each other. Yeah, I think um, her name is used in the long scene about my friend Samantha, which is 
which is uh, her character in uh, Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink or yeah, one, of one of those. Anyway, that yeah. name supposedly is the same Samantha. When my friend Samantha said her boyfriend's brother's neighbor's next door date with all that, you know, the whole long uh, yeah. epilogue there. So, but yeah, I say epilogue, and, monologue. And, <laughs> and just like a, a, a true um, cinematic universe, uh, this movie does have an after credit scene. Yes, it does. Which it was great. I did not know until I watched it this time. I just happened to leave it playing. Yeah. And uh, me and my wife were doing something else. And then I went to go turn it off at uh-huh. the exact moment. And all of a sudden I was like, huh, there is a scene at the yeah. end of this. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't. I didn't see. Like, I remember staying in the theater to watch the last scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But on this one, maybe I saw it like. I didn't stay in the theater to see that, I'm sure, but I think kind of like you, the VHS or whatever was playing, and then eventually it came on, I just left it on, or when you know, they put it on the TV, they just, they they scroll through the credits so fast, and they yeah. leave that scene up, so, but yeah, when it popped up, because I, I wasn't planning on watching the credits, but I was, uh, I was thinking about the music from the movie, and so I wanted to kind of see what the songs were, I've always kind of been that way with movies, like to see what songs uh, are in the movie, um, and then I just kind of let it play at that point. And then all of a sudden it, that scene popped up. I was like, oh man, I forgot this was in here. But uh, it was a great, great little nod back to the beginning of the the uh, the marketing guy still trying to figure out those uh, which picture was best. And you can notice that there's a turkey and the Thanksgiving dinner's there on the, on yeah. the, the boardroom table. And he's still trying to figure it out. Uh, that is a great scene. I would just, you know, we're going to work as we're moving into favorite scenes. And this isn't my favorite scene, but a great comedic scene right there at the beginning where every time he's about to like say something and then he goes back to look at the picture the more time it's just like they're all just waiting for him to speak I just thought that was that was you know comedy gold so yeah and they all lean in yeah every time yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so favorite scenes, go. I mean, how can it not be? <laughs> Those aren't pillows. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The bed. I mean, it's just, it's great. I mean, they even, uh, I know there's even a special edition like, yeah. DVD of the movie called <laughs> the, the Those Aren't Pillows Edition. Right, right. Um, I mean, how can that not be? Just the them waking up, snuggling. Yeah. And just everything. It's so, to me, that's so Steve, that's a Steve Martin scene. Yeah, yeah. Of everything's just calm, mm-hmm. and he's you know why did you just kiss my ear? <laughs> he goes, why are you, you holding, holding my hand? hand? Yeah. And he goes, well, where's your other hand? It's between two pillows, and then those are pillows. Mm, and yeah. I mean, it's just oh, it's just comedic gold. And then they get up and they have they they got a yeah. man up. Oh yeah, yeah. Watch that Bears game last weekend. Yeah, yeah. heck yeah. of a game. Heck oh, of a yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. Great game. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're gonna have go, a great year. Yeah, go, go all the way. Go all the way this year. <laughs> Yeah, um, and even how they set that scene up, I love how when they walk into the hotel and they see the bed and like the music plays the little whatever that music little motif is, 
and then they kind of they're trying to be busy like they don't see it and then they look at it again it's like they it's set up so well and he's like you want to take a shower no i didn't mean no not like take a shower i mean you want to go shake a shower you know just uh it's just so funny it's just so funny but um yeah steve martin was talking about them filming that scene in the bed and he said it was basically two different mornings they had to film this. They're coming in in their pajamas and like, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. You know, they, they get in the bed and he said, he said they wasted like 20 or 30 takes because there was a camera over them that would pan. And as they got closer to them, either one or both of them would just start cracking up because they knew it had to look hilarious. And then they, they said that they've got John Hughes with his monotone. Okay, because his ear, a little bit smaller. Short, no, go down a little bit. No, no. All right, nibble. Are you nibbling? Okay, now he's like, we're getting this direction, you know, this. <laughs> this deadpan yeah. direction. So uh I'm sure that was that was that was crazy. So yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a great scene. Any other ones? Um you know, I I mean there's a lot, but that one is a good one. Of course, we'd already mentioned the the car rental uh scene which uh, again, I'm not one for profanity, but yeah. like you said, it's not it's not um uh, it's unnecessary. Not, it's like not. You, it's not Tarantino. <laughs> no, you truly under. You truly understand why. Right. Right. He is doing it. Um, you know that. Uh, I, I love the. We we also mentioned it's pretty much everything in the car is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, from driving the wrong way to when they're going in between the the tractor trailers yeah, yeah. and Steve Martin actually sees John Candy <laughs> as the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they, they show them as uh, skeletons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you think, know. Yeah, thinking about that scene, and I remember, and once again, a lot of these movies I think about with my dad because we, we love watching movies together, and this is one we've watched several times, and even like right before this movie came out, we would we were, we, we were on road trips a lot. My dad being in the military, we usually lived a couple of hours from my grandparents, so like we were always trying to travel every couple of months. But my dad would never want, whenever he saw two 18-wheelers, you know, those kind of trucks side by side, even if it was like a four-lane highway, he never wanted to go in between them. He just, it always freaked him out. So when that scene came on, I mean, he just erupted. And he's still like, that was like his greatest fear <laughs> on film was right there in that in that scene. But of course, they're going the opposite direction. It's all, you know, you're going the wrong way, which is, one, that's still one of my favorite, uh, favorites of like, you know, they said we're going the wrong way. How do they know where we're going? How do they know where we're going? Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing, you know, the tractor trailer scene, uh, scary enough as it is, to me, going back to another John Hughes written movie, the one from Vacation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they end up underneath uh, the tractor trailer. Yeah, in Christmas Vacation. That, yeah, in Christmas yeah, Vacation. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. one is more terrifying, <laughs> if yeah. you ask me. Yeah, very true, very true. But part of me wonders, because me and my wife, my wife actually confused a scene out of this movie. She was okay. like, oh, this is the moment with the deer. No. And I was like, no, that's Tommy <laughs> Boy. Yeah, which is almost a remake, kind of, sort of. Yeah, which made me go back and go, you know what, how much of... The writers of Tommy Boy was actually inspired by this. Oh yeah, because there are a lot of similarities. Very much so. Di- totally different storyline, but a lot of similarities. The odd couple, the, the road yeah. trip, uh, the very you know different personalities. You know, once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I thought I was thinking the same thing. I was like, I'm, I was like, I know the car is going to catch on fire. But then I was thinking about, is this the deer? I thought the same. Is this the deer? Seems I know the deer is not in this one. Even though he makes the comment when he. His oh, and the jacket getting caught on the door handle. 
another yeah. one of those other like fears when we would travel like that even would freak me even out. now when we drive like if my wife is asleep I don't try to take my jacket off nope. I'm gonna sweat nope. but I'm I'll, gonna sweat or I'll wake her up and like hey can you help me take my jacket off before you can get really good and comfortable yeah. and uh because no I I have a fear of of you know in just any situation of you know pretty much not being able to move my arms <laughs> or my legs yeah. and yeah. so yeah I would have I would have freaked out. And then, uh, that was the case. and then talking about John Candy just being John Candy, the scene of him lip syncing to the mess around by Ray Charles, uh, that whole scene when he's driving is just fantastic. Uh, you know, he's playing the piano on the dashboard, he's doing the saxophone solo, all that just makes me laugh because that's, you know, that's me when I'm driving late night and <laughs> trying to stay awake. I mean, I just, I got the windows cracked. I wouldn't be smoking, but I'd have the windows cracked to get some cool air, got the radio blasting and just, you know, trying to have a good time. Uh, how Neil is sleeping through all that, I have no idea, but, uh, yeah. but it was funny. So, uh, yeah, great scene. But yeah, so there, and we'll, I guess we'll talk a little bit about, I, I really didn't plan to talk much about, you know, homages, but, um, definitely Tommy Boy is definitely inspired by this. Um, there was another movie that came out, uh, probably about 10 or so years ago called Due Date with Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis, Zach Galifianakis which, yeah. which I think at that time they were saying was supposed to be somewhat of a, you know, loosely inspired by, or you know, slight re- reboot of uh, Tommy Boy, uh, not Tommy Boy, <laughs> Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Uh, but I'm sure it's been copied and you know, done several different ways. Um, and actually, for me, <laughs> which is kind of funny, I used to write a lot of short stories, and I actually wrote a short story, kind of following the same uh, format as well. Um, I wish I still had it. I think I let somebody borrow it to read it and I never got it back. But it was basically about, you know, two guys that meet. We we didn't get on a plane. The whole premise for my story was the um, the, the main guy, which would be like the Steve Martin character. Um, his father was like injured in a plane crash. So he doesn't want to get on a plane. So he decides to uh, take a bus. And during the so it's just it's just buses and automobiles. It's not plane trains. But anyway, so he decides to take a bus, and the bus is full, and this other guy gets on the bus with him. That's the complete opposite of him, and it was based on somebody that I actually knew. Uh, and so and how we didn't get along. So I kind of worked on my frustration through the short story, and so we kind of have some of the same uh, same trouble trying to get back to. Uh, we're both trying to get to the same place, and I can't. You know, the green character can't shake the other guy. So anyway. Uh, so I even have my own little plane trains and automobiles homage short story that one day I'll try to rewrite because I can't find the original. But I don't know. And speaking of the the but the bus scene is so random. Oh yeah yeah yeah. It is so random to me. Um, yeah, I've never I've traveled long distances on a like a Greyhound bus, mm-hmm. but it was with like I I knew everyone on the bus. Like it wasn't with just random people, so oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know really how different it is. But I don't, uh, I don't think those buses have sing-alongs. I mean, you know, that's I think that's kind of yeah. showing the, the the Del Griffith. What's interesting about it is, like I think you mentioned that earlier, is like the Del Griffith character is that he's kind of loved by everybody he comes in contact with, except for Neil. Like there's just something that Neil just doesn't, you know, he just rubs him the wrong. I mean, it's just the 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 vast difference of their personalities. But, but that, I think that scene kind of shows that like he, he's loved by every, everyone thinks he's such a great guy, but Neil just doesn't see it until, you know, kind of till the end. So, but it's also a scene in terms of character that kind of breaks from Neil's character. 
the fact that he's just you know happily ready to sing his song even though <laughs> oh, no yeah, one yeah. likes it right you know it, it kind of seems a little out like, out of character yeah. for him uh for me so yeah i don't know the the bus scene i think is probably one of the weaker yeah. scenes um yeah but. and once again with the the much longer version there might have been other parts to it that made could have made it make more sense or be more in context but there was probably something there that he wanted to leave at least to get them where they're going so yeah. i don't know it needed a few more automobiles yeah <laughs> yeah uh just some i guess some behind the scenes trivia we'll hit a couple of these and then we'll start wrapping things up so uh, this was interesting. On the first day of shooting, the crew brought in treadmills, weights, and other exercise equipment for John Candy to use in his hotel suite. Steve Martin said Candy, at the end of the shoot, didn't use any of it. So I don't know if that was something in his contract where they <laughs> were trying to get him in shape for some reason, but it didn't, didn't work. So uh, Dylan Baker, who I mentioned, uh, who played the part of Owen, the hotel manager's son-in-law, he created the character himself. The snorts, the facial tics. And twisted expressions are all of his own making. Luli Newcomb, who played the silent wife, said it was extremely difficult to keep a straight face while filming the scene. Uh, John Hughes was also known for staging improvisational moments for his actors in order to capture a genuine reaction. Since he was not satisfied with the Owen scene of them having introductions after several takes, he privately instructed Baker to wipe the spit in his right hand just before shaking hands with Neil. Steve Martin, a known germaphobe, was not expecting this as his facial expression contorts in disgust, having just clutched Baker's saliva-slathered hand. The film crew reportedly exploded in laughter as Martin ran off to wash his hands immediately following the encounter. Hugh got the, Hughes got the reaction he needed and the footage was kept in the film. I think they missed an opportunity with with the wife there too. Yeah, yeah. Because, I, you know, I'm fine with her being silent and I love that, you know, he's like, you know, she's She's tiny, but she's strong, yeah. or whatever it is. The baby came out sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She never, never screamed. Or uh, I, I think he was. I think she. Sh- I think she should have gotten out of the truck and revealed that she was pregnant. Yeah. Like I, I just think there was a moment missed there. Right, right. Uh, did you know that Elton John and lyricist Gary Osborne were commissioned to compose the theme song for the film? I did. I actually, when I did a little research, I, mm. I discovered that and found out that they pretty much wrote it yeah. but the studio never, decided not to use it well they never recorded it it had to do with uh, I guess uh, well I'll just, I'll just read what I have um, they were ju- they had nearly completed writing it when just two days before they were to record it Paramount Pictures issued a last minute demand that the original song Master become property of the studio Elton's recording company Polygram would not allow this as he was under contractual obligation to give Polygram rights to all his released music Paramount and Polygram could not reach a deal in the impasse, and both composers withdrew from the project. Paramount instead opted to license Paul Young's Every Time You Go Away as the movie's theme song. Elton John's original song was never recorded. So, Which, when that music starts, like, that's one of my favorite you know, 80s songs, but then it's not his version. It's not the Paul Young version, which is kind of disappointing. <laughs> so... Um, Critical reception, it was greeted with critical acclaim upon release, a, a revelation in that Hughes was considered a teen angst filmmaker. It also got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, with Gene Siskel declaring it John Candy's best role to date. So, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 91% on the tomato meter with an 87% audience score. 
IMDb has it 7.6 out of 10 with a 72 on Metacritic. So are you uh, more Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb? You... Uh, yeah, I'm probably in that Rotten Tomatoes audience score. I'm yeah. probably in that 80. 87. 80 realm. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's great. I probably agree. It's, it, it, you know, if I were to say it, uh, comparing John Candy roles, it would probably be right at the top. Yeah. John Candy rolls for me too. Uh, again, it's not one that, you know, like I said, I'm going to watch, you know, every year over and over again. Um, but I'm going to enjoy to watch, watching it every time I see it. Yeah. And once again, I think what I mentioned before, like my, my grading scale is all on rewatchability. There can be a great film, but if I don't want to watch it over and over again, I just can't give it very high marks. And this is one that I may not watch every year, but I'm going to watch every couple of years. And once again, if it's on TV, I'm going to sit down and watch at least whatever part they're going to show until the next commercial and I give up and go to something else. But um, yeah, I would give it, it's definitely high 80s, low 90s for me um, as far as one of my favorites. So, and I agree, this this is by far my favorite John Candy role. And I think he's great in Uncle Buck. He was great in Great Outdoors. I mean, most just about everything I've seen him in. Maybe not Who's Harry Crumb. Uh, you know, some of his his later Canadian bacon. Yeah, some of his later movies. Uh, but in that mid '80s uh, time frame when he was making these type of movies, especially the movies with Hughes, um, I think Hughes was able to tap into, like I said, that the sweetness and kind of the you know he's funny, but there's heart, a lot of heart to him. I think that that that's what makes him shine really in this one. So, well, it opened in American theaters on November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty seven, right around Thanksgiving, which I guess the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. It finished third for the weekend, behind Three Men and a Baby and a re release of Disney's animated classic Cinderella. It grossed just o- just over seven million dollars. After its first five days, the film grossed ten million dollars and stayed in the top ten for seven weeks. The movie finished its American run on January 22, 1988, with $49,530,280 after a 12-week run. With an estimated budget of $30 million, it was considered a moderate theatrical success. So, But it's continued to be, like I said, uh, a holiday classic, at least at least in my book. So what about you? Well, I mean, it, it's the quintessential uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving movie. Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's... There's not I mean, too many. I know there's others out there. Uh, John Hughes also wrote Dutch, right, which, which was around Thanksgiving. Also about you know getting home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, and then there's there's others. Uh, I think the Family Stone takes yeah. place during Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, but I, I this is to me this is a Thanksgiving movie. Right. Right. I mean, as much as there are Christmas movies and Valentine's mm-hmm. Day movies and you know whatever other holidays, this is a Thanksgiving movie because it's about what Thanksgiving supposed to be about right right you know, it, it's about that desire to be with family and friends it's about the the travel yeah that people do. the craziness of uh, travel and the holidays so for yeah, sure so uh, it, yeah it's a it, it's when you know people talk about the holiday all the different holidays in their movies this is the movie that right now is you know connected to thanksgiving yeah exactly so all right, man. Well, I agree 100%. I think this is a quintessential Thanksgiving movie, and I'm glad we got to watch it right before Thanksgiving of 2020, which could be its own drama comedy. <laughs> but I appreciate you being on this episode with me. I look forward to uh, our next movie we're going to talk about is actually coming up in a couple weeks. 
the is it a Christmas movie or is it not a yeah. Christmas movie? We're going to talk about Die Hard from 1988. So, which I know is... The question is yes. Yeah, Laramie's going to answer the question already. So, but we'll discuss that and all the fun behind the scenes uh, stuff about that movie. This is one of... Lar- is this your favorite movie, Laramie? This is your favorite Bruce Willis movie, I know. Yeah, I'm about to say, favorite, it's not my favorite movie. Uh, we, we, we'll we never discuss my favorite movie because it came out in the 90s. True. Uh, I know which one that was. Right. I'll, I'll say that. But, uh, but it, it's up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big diehard fan. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that one. We'll we'll hit that one in uh, in the next episode in a couple of weeks as we get ready to move from Thanksgiving into the Christmas holiday season. But I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving as if you're listening to this uh, during the Thanksgiving weekend when it drops. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining me, Laramie. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.